This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, this, um, this talk actually had a longer title, which we cut for the sake of economy. Uh, and that longer title is The Two Friars, uh, Chesterton and Pope Francis on the Affinities Between Saints Francis and Thomas. And uh, I had, uh, it's, a, it's not a real long paper. It's about a 16 page paper that I'm gonna read and I'll make some asides. It should take me 35 minutes or so to read it. And then I'm happy to take questions. But I had read um, Chesterton's two little biographies of Francis and uh, Thomas many years ago. And then uh, when I was reading a few years back, uh, Pope Francis encyclical Laudato Si, I was struck by a similar approach to yoking together these two saints who are of course contemporaneous uh, roughly, uh, but who are not typically paired. And I was, I was very struck by this sort of Chestertonian set of themes that I discovered. And you can tell me whether you think my discovery is accurate or not. Uh, but uh, so let me begin with this and I'll be going back and forth uh, between uh, the encyclical and, and the texts of Thomas uh, and uh, the remarks and comments of Chesterton as, as I go through this. And then I want to say some things about art at the end and talk a little bit about one contemporary film uh, just briefly. So in the two consecutive paragraphs, 86 and 87, in the encyclical Laudato Si, Pope Francis cites at length, first Thomas Aquinas, and then St. Francis at length. He cites Aquinas on the fittingness of God creating a multiplicity and variety of creatures. Here's the quote. The universe as a whole, in all its manifold relationships, shows forth the inexhaustible riches of God. St. Thomas Aquinas wisely noted that multiplicity and variety, and here's a quote, come from the intention of the first agent who willed that what was wanting to one in the representation of the divine goodness might be supplied by another. Inasmuch as God's goodness could not be represented fittingly by any one creature alone. Hence, Pope Francis concludes, we need to grasp the variety of things in their multiple relationships. He then, in the next section, quotes Francis's canticle. Praise be to you, my Lord, through all your creatures, especially Sir Brother Son, who is the day, and through whom you give us light. And he is beautiful and radiant with great splendor, and bears a likeness of you, Most High. Praise be to you, my Lord, through Sister Moon and the stars. In heaven you form them clear and precious and beautiful. Praise be to you, my Lord, through brother wind and through the air, cloudy and serene, and every kind of weather through whom you give sustenance to your creatures. Praise be to you, my Lord, through sister water, who is very useful and humble and precious and chaste. Praise be to you, my Lord, through brother fire, through whom you light the night, and he is beautiful and playful and robust and strong. This is the longest citation of Francis's canticle in the entire encyclical. It's the longest quote. And it's preceded, not just in the preceding paragraph, but in the ones just before that, by fairly lengthy quotations from Aquinas. This juxtaposition of Thomas and Francis calls to mind, or at least it did for me and still does, Chesterton's peculiar and peculiarly brilliant discernment of a deep affinity between the two saints. In the opening of his little book on St. Thomas in a chapter entitled Two Friars, Chesterton audaciously aligns the two. The comparison, he says, is justified because it brings us most rapidly to the real question of the life and work of St. Thomas. These two friars approach the same problem 
from different angles. Just as Francis welcomed created nature, Thomas proved hospitable to the naturalistic thought of Aristotle. Their receptivity to the created order had nothing to do with pagan nature worship. In fact, it was the opposite of that. It's rooted in their deep sense that nature is an artifact, a reflection of the divine art and wisdom. And their rethinking of nature is made possible by their deep affirmation and their realization of the implications of the incarnation. In complementary ways, they were responsible, Chesterton says, for a reformation of the church and a renaissance of learning. Pope Francis finds in Thomas and Francis, respectively, a metaphysics and a poetics of creation that supply a remedy for what ails the contemporary world. In this talk, I wanna begin by making a couple of observations about Laudato Si, which I think remains a deeply misunderstood document. Then I wanna talk about some themes that are common to the encyclical and Chesterton's examination of the two friars. The most audacious claim in the encyclical is not the affirmation of the reality of climate change, but the insistence that a coherent and effective environmental philosophy requires both an anthropology and a cosmology. The working assumption of the Laudato Si encyclical is that what we most need today is a theologically informed reimagining of the place of human persons in the entirety of the created cosmos. This is precisely what Laudato Si attempts to take us some direction toward. Pope Francis discerns beneath the contemporary ecological problems a metaphysical and existential affliction of human persons who are now lost in the cosmos, increasingly alienated from self, others, nature, and God. As Walker Percy writes in his book called Lost in the Cosmos, we live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. Percy should have lived to see 2020. Ecological threats in Laudato Si are but one symptom of a broader crisis. Francis writes, if the present ecological crisis is one small sign of the ethical, cultural, and spiritual crisis of modernity, we cannot presume to heal our relationship with nature and the environment without healing all fundamental human relationships. What is needed is a kind of reconciliation. This calls to mind Chesterton's statement uh, about Francis. He says that the, the basic thesis of his treatment of Francis is that St. Francis walked the world like the pardon of God. His appearance marked the moment when men could be reconciled not only to God, but to nature and most difficult of all to themselves. More than perhaps any recent encyclical, Laudato seems, seems very much of the moment. Yet it articulates a metaphysics and poetics of creation whose inspiration is thoroughly medieval, drawing from Francis and Thomas, Bonaventure and Dante. And in this way, I think it does at a very deep level call to mind Francis's uniting of Thomas and, uh, excuse me, Chesterton's uniting of Thomas and Francis. Each in his own way, Chesterton says, had a liberating and humanizing effect on religion. One in the order of imagination and the other in the order of intellect. They both embraced the lowest things out of humility and out of confidence that, as Chesterton puts it, the humblest fact leads to the highest thing. Two comments about this encyclical. 
Francis is arguing quite explicitly in some places that what modernity wants in the way of a rich ecology is better realized on the basis of Catholic anthropology and cosmology. Francis says, the faith offers motivation to care for nature and for the most vulnerable of our brothers and sisters. The poverty and ascetical self-denial of St. Francis open him to wondrous awe in the face of creation and to the practice of what we might call ecological virtues, gratitude, wonder, joy, peace. But Francis is not simply saying that Christians have additional motives to care for creation. He's implicitly posing the question whether contemporary environmentalists can sustain their vision without something like the rich philosophical or theological vision that Laudato Si articulates. Here, I think the strategy is quite similar to that of John Paul II in Fides et Ratio, which attempts to rescue reason from its contemporary dissolution. The question that encyclical posed, the challenge to modernity that Fides et Ratio posed, was whether modernity, priding itself on rationality uncumbered by faith, that had led to complete disbelief in reason, whether that, uh, that could sustain a commitment to reason at all without something like classical metaphysics and theology. Here in Laudato Si, the question is whether the crisis of ecology can be resolved without reference to something like the Christian vision of the created order. Modern accounts of reason vacillate between excessive confidence in reason on the one hand and despairing skepticism. So too ecological accounts of nature, Francis writes, vacillate or uh, modern accounts of nature, excuse me, vacillate between two extremes, between envisioning humanity as Lord and master over the raw material as nature on the one hand, and on the other, seeing the human animal as the enemy of the rest of the natural order. Modernity, he writes in its first guise, is marked by an excessive anthropocentrism. So one strain, anthropocentrism, invites manipulation of nature without limits. Reacting against the destructive consequences of this view, another strain, what Francis calls biocentrism, sees humans as threats to the cosmos. Thus, we find ourselves, Francis says, in a constant schizophrenia, where we move from one to the other. Having lost any sense of natural order, biblical anthropology, as John Paul II, Benedict, and Francis all call it, becomes unintelligible to us. As Benedict observes, we end up either considering nature as an untouchable taboo or on the contrary, abusing it. Neither attitude is consonant with the Christian vision of nature as the fruit of God's creation. We vacillate between a Promethean view and a new pantheistic view. The writings and lives of the two friars constitute a third way, an alternative to both anthropocentrism and pantheism or biocentrism. Second comment I wanna make, which is much briefer about the encyclical. Laudato Si contains a surprising application of one of the key teachings of John Paul II's Veritatis Splendor on the danger of the modern opposition between autonomy and heteronomy. The modern emphasis on autonomy grounds dignity in freedom from any external rule. Such external constraints are viewed as heteronomous, alienation of reason and freedom. John Paul II argues, as participants in a created order, human reason and freedom participate in God's law and wisdom. Hence, there is no alienation, no heteronomy involved. Freedom instead results from obedience to the limits and order of the whole. What John Paul II calls in Veritatis Splendor and applies in the moral order, 
what he calls participated theonomy, is precisely what Francis counsels in the ecological order and what St. Francis fully embodies for him, participated theonomy. Okay, now to a few themes that are common to Chesterton's reading of Francis and Thomas and to the encyclical. First, the body and creation. Chesterton thinks that the poetry of Francis and the metaphysics of Aquinas allow created nature to come alive. He detects a congruence between Christian and Aristotelian themes, especially when it comes to the goodness of the human body. In his humility, Chesterton remarks, Francis regarded himself as an animal, referring to his body as a donkey. Thomas provides doctrinal clarity in his claim that the soul without a body is not a human person. In a key passage from the Gospel of Life, John Paul II puts his finger on the anthropological roots of our alienation from nature, which has to do with the loss of the Aristotelian and Thomistic language of soul as form of the body. Early modern conceptions of human nature, whether they are reductionist, materialist, or dualist, both reject the understanding of soul as form of the body. And both are tempted to see the physical world, even the human body itself, as raw material to be manipulated and disposed of according to the will of the human agent. This is what Walker Percy identifies as the modern heresy of angelism, the denial that our bodies are shot through with moral and spiritual significance. And this is, of course, a prominent theme in Chesterton's little book on Aquinas. An entire chapter is devoted to the topic of Aquinas's refutation of the dualism of the Manichaeans. It is also there in Chesterton's portrayal of Francis as a kind of hyper-realist concerning particular existing beings. Francis Chesterton insists was not a lover of mankind, but a lover of individual human persons. He was not a lover of nature, but a lover of this bird and that wolf. Aristotle's insistence on the reality, intelligibility, and perfection of individually existing beings is, and here it's a little bit of technical philosophy, but his rejection of what he understood to be Plato's celebration of abstract universals rather than particulars. This, for Chesterton, is the philosophical revolution that matches perfectly the theological revolution wrought in history by the incarnation of the Son of God. To Luther's skeptical query, who put Aristotle in my scripture? Chesterton would respond, it's Aristotle's philosophy that helps us understand and articulate the distinctively Christian conception of the intelligibility of created beings in their concrete materiality. Of course, there are elements of that Christian account that Aristotle could never have anticipated. And some of these lead Thomas to move well beyond Aristotle in ways that we might say Chesterton doesn't adequately acknowledge. Chesterton hints at this when he underscores the transforming role of the Christian doctrine of the resurrection of the body. But of course, Chesterton thinks that that doctrine leads us to affirm Aristotle over Plato, or should. Another hint can be found in an, in an one of the many striking passages in which Chesterton states that reading Thomas gives an impression analogous to poetry, an impression that communicates what Chesterton calls the strangeness of things, their otherness. One important theme which is common to Francis and Thomas and Dominic and Bonaventure has to do with the understanding of divine creation as a kind of artistic activity. Chesterton doesn't really develop this, but it is quite prominent in Laudato Si. Eager to defend, define, defend divine freedom, but at the same time to avoid arbitrariness in creation. Thomas crafts an analogy between creation and artistic making. 
In a key passage in Laudato Si, Francis quotes Thomas on precisely this point from the commentary on the physics. Nature is nothing other than a certain kind of art, namely God's art impressed upon things, whereby those things are moved to a determinate end. It is as if a shipbuilder were able to give timbers the wherewithal to move themselves to take the form of a ship. Francis goes further than this, saying the spirit of God has filled the universe with possibilities, and therefore from the very heart of things, something new can always emerge. God's divine presence ensures the subsistence and growth of each being, and thus continues the work of creation. Strong themes in Thomas. What is St. Francis's entire canticle, but a song of praise responding to the beauty and artistry of the transcendent creator of all beautiful things. That the whole of creation comes into being from nothing and merely for the sake of manifesting God to other beings means that creation is a sheer gift. What some medieval authors have called the first grace this has interesting consequences. A great Thomist from the last century, Ken Schmitz, wrote, the term gift is rooted in a domain of significance that is charged with discontinuity and contingency, with risk, vulnerability, and surprise. The gift points beyond itself to its source, to a more or less definitely apprehended giver. This is in... Um, Schmitz's um, uh, Aquinas lecture, the Marquette Aquinas lecture, the title of it is called The Gift Creation. Very wonderful little long essay. This point surfaces repeatedly in Chesterton's writings on Francis and Thomas, namely that praise arises in response to a gift. He remarks at one point, every good thing is better when it's understood as a gift. And this has implications to go back to the beginning of this section for how we understand the human body. It is not just that as Aristotle was able to see, the human body has an integrity befitting the rational soul. It's further the case that we are to understand our very bodies as gifts of the divine artist creator. Okay, so body and creation. The second theme I wanna talk briefly about is science and religion. Noting the way Albert, and Thomas eagerly embrace Aristotle's rigorous investigation of the natural world. Chesterton asserts boldly, but that's redundant with Chesterton, right? To say boldly, everything asserts is bold. If Aquinas's inspiration and thought had adequately informed Christian encounters with science, there would never have been any conflict between science and religion. We've already posed some challenges to the traditional understanding of the human person that come from dualism and materialism, and then later anthropocentrism and biocentrism. Perhaps an even bigger challenge comes from our Darwinian evolution. And I'm only gonna be able to touch a little bit on this here. And the biggest challenge of Darwin, let's be clear, is not a developmental view of life versus a six-day creationist view. Very early on in the Christian interpretation of Genesis, what we would call non-literal readings of the creation narrative were defended most prominently in Augustine's book-length exegesis of Genesis. And, and the irony of this is, the title of that is De Genesi Ad Litera. Augustine argues that the literal interpretation of Genesis on that, we must reject a six-day creation. He believes that the six days symbolize six revelations of creation that God gave to the angels. But there are other issues. However much the capacities of animals might anticipate human intelligence, and Aristotle and Aquinas are willing to lend some credit here, Human persons are nonetheless distinctive. There's a great book on this topic by another uh, mid-20th century Thomist, Charles DeConnick, 
called, it was an unfinished book on evolution called The Cosmos. And DeConnick notes that with other higher animals, we share the capacity for memory, but our memory is different. It does more than just preserve the past. It recognizes the past as past. Even in the operation of memory, the human animal transcends memory and in a sense time. In the human person, DeConnick writes, we can discern the triumph of spirit over the dissipation of time. The world is here bent in upon itself and the human person integrates the cosmos. DeConnick is drawing out what he takes to be here, the cosmological significance of Aristotle's claim that the human soul is potentially all things, right? Potens omnia, as Aquinas puts it. And DeConnick makes a really nice point, a Socratic point about the peculiar character of human ignorance. The human intellect's awareness that it does not comprehend the whole underscores its orientation toward that whole. Its capacity, as DeConnick nicely puts it, to make a tour of being. The evolution of the higher from the lower, evident through paleontology, requires not some ad hoc intervention, but the intentionality of a universal cause. DeConnick has no patience for the sort of occasionalism that passes for creationism. The Thomistic tendency, he says, inspired by St. Augustine, enriches as much as possible the causality of the creature, not with the goal of eliminating divine intervention or divine causality, but in order to increase it. For the creative power seen from the side of its effect is most profoundly at work where created causes are most causes. Part of what he wants to clarify, DeConnick that is, is that creation, we talked about an analogy between art and creation, but there's an important disanalogy in this. Creation does not introduce a change into pre-existing matter. Aquinas writes, in creation, by which the whole substance of a thing is produced, the same thing can be taken as different now and before only according to our way of understanding. Because of course, there is no before until God creates the being. And that's the big disanalogy with any type of human or finite creativity. There's always a before and an after because whatever creativity goes on within this cosmos presupposes something that exists that is reshaped. Whereas God creates the very things that he then shapes. This is a very important point for DeConnick. God's motive in creating is to manifest his glory outside, not to manifest it to himself, as if by creation he could grow in his own regard. Creation is essentially a communication. His work, that is some part of the created order, must be capable of appreciating the gratuitous gift that communication is, and that is achieved in the person, that is in an intellectual creature who can give glory to his principle or cause. Once again, the Thomistic metaphysics of creation is paired with the poetics of creation in Francis, both of which give rise to gratitude and praise, giving glory to the principle or source. DeConnick's account of the motive of creation correlates from a theological perspective with the understanding in Aristotle of the human person as a creature characterized by open-ended wonder. All men by nature desire knowledge, the metaphysics begins, and the verb there is actually all men by nature reach out for knowledge. Human self-knowledge involves metaphysics and cosmology, history and paleontology. It's a beautiful line for the end of DeConnick's book. We will only be able to understand ourselves when we understand the universe. 
Our present is filled with the past. Okay, the last set of themes, beauty and worship. Chesterton's reference to Aquinas as a kind of poet, even in his most scholastic writing, hints at an important and, of course, again, neglected feature of Aquinas's thought, namely his attention to the beautiful. Human makers, as we've already noted, never create ex nihilo. Thomas comments, no created being can produce a being absolutely, except as it causes the being of this particular thing in this way. Thomas would affirm Tolkien's notion that human makers are sub-creators. Pope Francis puts it this way in Laudato Si, our capacity to reason, to develop arguments, to be inventive, to interpret reality and to create art are signs of a uniqueness which transcend the spheres of physics and biology. Such creating aims in its highest form, right? Because it also has to do with making shoes and tables and so forth. In its highest form, and even in its lowest, it presents what is beautiful. Laudato C at one point explicitly calls for an aesthetic education that would inculcate virtues of wonder, receptivity, and gratitude in the presence of the beautiful. How, does, how do these themes of beauty show up in Aquinas? They're obviously shot through the entire poem, the canticle of Francis. Thomas adopts from Aristotle, he's thought to agree to Aristotle in arguing that the ultimate end of human life is intellectual contemplation of God. People think this because he says it. But when he elaborates on how we're to understand the relationship of contemplation to action, he articulates a vision that cannot be found in Aristotle, and that is Christocentric. The life of contemplation, he writes, this is the, so if you look at the Summa, the big second part is the part that has to do with morality and the good. And it begins with a reflection on the ultimate end of human life. And in that section, we, we are driven to the conclusion that nothing satisfies the human soul except the direct vision of God. The second part of the Summa ends with a reflection on the, on the, the ways of life, the modes of life, the contemplative and the active life. This is, of course, Aquinas situating the question of ethics within the debates between the Benedictines and the friars, right? Whose lives are not exclusively contemplative. The life of contemplation, Aquinas says, has its roots in the affections, universally in the natural longing to know, specifically within the life of faith, in that, here's a quote, from the love of God, we are inflamed, Aquinas writes, to behold his beauty. But the beholding of God itself gives rise to the activities of preaching and teaching and practicing the virtues. There's the Dominican calling coming into play, the order of preachers. But notice for Aquinas, the active life here arises from the fullness of contemplation from a superabundance of contemplation. Our participation in the life of God through contemplation is not only about contemplating creation as a means of achieving union. It also leads us to imitate Christ and God's communication to us through creation and the incarnation. Christ's descent his emptying of himself to communicate with us. In fact, the killer argument for Aquinas on the mixed life, the life of contemplation and action as being superior even to the pure life of contemplation is the simple sentence, Christ himself chose such a life. And that's a pretty good description of the life of Francis. St. Francis, whose contemplation of the crucified Christ so formed him that he received the stigmata and emptied himself 
in service to others. With few exceptions, I think, contemporary Christian thought and art have focused on the human drama without attending to the shape of the created cosmos or to the way in which we are to perceive and praise God through the created world. It neglects Laudato Si. The Pope's encyclical calls for and offers some hints in the direction of the renewal of the Christian imagination. The final sections of the encyclical, particularly on the Eucharist, are, I think, intimately connected. They're not just theological add-ons to the ecological vision of the whole. The word Eucharist, of course, itself means thanksgiving. Pope Francis offers, and we should note, right, that when Aquinas was at his, literally at his most poetic, he was composing Eucharistic hymns, adoration hymns, right? And if you read the best contemporary biography of Francis, don't tell the Franciscans this, but it's written by a Dominican, Augustine Thompson. One of the things that Father Thompson shows is that Francis mentions the Eucharist many, many more times than he mentions poverty. Not that poverty is unimportant, but poverty is rooted for Francis in the Eucharist. Pope Francis notes, in the Eucharist, as in the incarnation, incarnation, God comes to us not from above, but from within. In this case, through a fragment of matter. There's a wonderful congruence here between the encyclical and Chesterton's reflection on what he calls deliberately uh, misleading in, in terms of the term, but the materialism of the gospel. He writes, the greatest revolution in history undergirds the supposition that we should begin with the most material, the meanest or lowest of things. That's Chesterton. Back to Francis. In the Eucharist, the whole of creation finds its greatest exaltation. In the sacrament, fullness is already achieved. It's the living center of the universe, the overflowing core of love and of inexhaustible life. In it, the whole cosmos give thanks to God in an act of cosmic love. What might such an aesthetic look like in contemporary art? We could look in the past at great Catholic poets from Dante to Hopkins. I want to make a couple remarks here by way of ending to Terence Malick's Tree of Life. And, I mean, about which I have some mixed judgments, but on this point, it's really brilliant. A young boy in this film asked his mother, tell us a story from before we can remember. It's a great request of a child to a mom who remembers more about the child's life than the child does. Malik begins his film with the story from before we can remember. This lengthy opening sequence, which led people to walk out of the theater because they had no clue what was going on, traces the history of the universe initial explosion, expansion, formation of galaxies, all the way down to the development of life on what DeConnick beautifully calls a poor little planet born of a catastrophe. That's our planet. The film is an ambitious artistic exploration of questions rarely formulated by religious believers. How do we think about cosmology, about the place of human existence in the capacious orders of time and space? What matter to us, to the universe, or to God is our occupying this speck of seemingly insignificant space in an incomprehensibly vast universe? What we know of modern cosmology and paleontology makes the psalmist question even more apt. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? As one character in the film puts it, what are we to you? Malik's opening gives dramatic weight to the film's epigraph from Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? These are the questions that inform the writing, the lives, 
the poetic mentality of the two friars. A little bit more about this film, and then I'll end. Those questions also for, frame the story of a family in Waco, Texas, where Malik spent some of his childhood in the 1950s. Not only does the film encompass these lives of family members within a cosmic drama, it also continually interjects a vertical perspective into their linear story. So what I'm thinking of here is that you have camera angles that are at the level of human persons. And Malik's in all of his films is fond of these angles that shoot up from the ground through trees into sunlight. I think the suggestion here is that in order to gain access, to gain a perspective on human life, we not only have to look before and after, but up and down. We need to look at the way time is situated in relation to eternity and not just how temporal moments are situated one after another. This opens a different perspective on the action, one descending from above, from the God who transcends the entire order of time and space, and yet mysteriously perhaps intervenes. Dialogue in this film is sparse, and it's interspersed with interior monologues, which occasionally contain comments on other characters, but more often, and I think this is one of the genius of this film, how often do you spend in your daily life sort of talking to yourself in your head or sitting in a car or walking somewhere and asking God something, right? What other film actually captures that reality of our daily experience? This is going on all the time in this film. The story begins with catastrophe, with the parents receiving word of the death of one of their sons. And this prompts internal questioning, inner monologues. Why? Where were you? Why should I be good if you aren't? Malik's film is a corrective to the contemporary Christian tendency to avoid nature and science altogether. In flight from evolution and in fear of what Pascal calls the silence of these infinite spaces. Many Christians today, philosophical, theological, and artistic Christians have little to say about the physical cosmos or our bodies. The danger again is angelism, the temptation to think of ourselves as if we were not animals as if we were not part of a grand, terrifying, and mysterious universe crafted by the same God who made us. The wonder inspired by encountering the vast power of nature should increase rather than diminish our awe of God. As the very title of the encyclical Laudato Si reminds us, the life of St. Francis was in its entirety a life of praise. But this, according to Chesterton, is also the case for St. Thomas Aquinas. He writes, and I'll end with this quotation, nobody will begin to understand the Thomas philosophy who does not realize that the primary and fundamental part of it is entirely the praise of life, the praise of being, the praise of God as the creator of the world. Thank you. Uh, thank you for presenting, that was lovely. Um, I'd, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the way that contemplation looks in the lives of Thomas Francis, but also Chesterton, it, it seems that Francis demonstrates contemplation almost through the particulars. Like, like you said at the beginning, he loved the individual birds. Uh, and it seems that, that Thomas sort of best demonstrates contemplation through, you know, call it armchair philosophy, through abstractions and through metaphysics. And I think we can see both of them in the works of Chesterton, either through that, you know, tremendous trifles, attention to particulars and to the scale of the garden, but also, you know, an everlasting man when he waxes philosophical about all of mankind in this sort of abstraction. Um, what are your thoughts on sort of the ways that, that each of them demonstrates contemplation or, or are, they, are they closer than I'm, than I'm thinking? Yeah, that's a really good question. I haven't thought about that comparatively I'm thinking about it now because you asked the question, uh, but I hadn't thought about it previously. It, it does seem to me that, um, uh, that with Francis, we have a very direct contemplation of the crucified Christ. That, that that's what, and th this, is, this is how Bonaventure lays out his life of Francis, right? That it's, 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 the, it's the contemplation of the crucified Christ 
that brings union with the crucified Christ. That, that I don't think, I mean, I don't think Thomas Aquinas neglected the crucified Christ, but that is not the form of his contemplation um, typically. Uh, what I also don't think it's, it's not quite right to say, I think from the outside, it looks like abstraction. This is, this is a point that, um, that Chesterton's getting at in that chapter on Aquinas against the Manichaeans, right? Where he's at dinner with King Louis and, and he's caught up in, they're, they're all, all the influential people are talking and Aquinas slams his fist down and says, that'll do it for the Manichaeans as if he's figured out an argument, right? And that, that is, um, that, sound, you know, that sounds like Socrates standing on the porch uh, in the symposium, you know, just staring off in some sort of contemplative uh, abstraction. But here's the counter to that, and it's the counter that Chesterton is rightly emphasizes in that the, it, in that it, Aquinas's contemplation is also very deeply Christian, in the sense that we we have lots of records of him sort of trailing off from you know there there's images of him counting the reasons right on his fingers, uh, and we also have stories of him working with two or three scribes at once. So while they're writing his article 42 of question uh, 18 in some part of the Summa, someone else is, he's then moved over to do another part in the commentary on Paul, on uh, Paul's letter to the Romans or Aristotle. But the other thing we have stories of, of, are of him just stopping all of that and being caught up in contemplation. And we know because there are records of uh, Christ speaking to him, right, in contemplation, that th this is, I don't think this is a, a movement up through stages of platonic abstraction in Aquinas. It's a movement that does move away from what's immediately in his surrounding, but it's a movement toward a personal God. Chesterton, boy, I don't really know what to say there. Uh, except this, that the writing of Chesterton gives evidence of just, I mean, it's, I hadn't read him for a while until I went back and, and reread a bunch of things for, for this talk. I reread him when I read Laudato Si, what, five years ago when it came out. Um, and and it, he's one of those writers, kind of like Newman, that because of the style of the prose, it's a little bit hard to get back into if you haven't been reading it regularly. And so I found myself at first struggling a little bit to, to, uh, to get back into Chesterton. But once you do, uh, it, it remains kind of overwhelming because the, the, the paradoxes, the audacious statements, the insight, the paragraphs just brimming with one insight after another. And I'll start talking about Aquinas, and then you got six paragraphs on something about modernity and you wonder where Aquinas went. And then somehow he dances right back to Aquinas without missing a beat. And you know, there's, there's something, I'm gonna quote Peeper to talk about Chesterton. There, there's something that Peeper says about the order of prudence, the attention to particulars, right? That is rooted, Peeper says, in a kind of silent receptivity to the real. And, Chesterton seems bombastic and always moving, but what, what is beneath that is this remarkable contemplative openness to seeing things that others don't see and having the language to articulate it, right? Um, you know, that, that great line from, uh, from Wittgenstein, uh, you don't have to know or like anything about German philosophy, but it's a great line where he says that, and he didn't mean what I, how I use it, but the limits of my language mark the limits of my world. And Chesterton had this gift of language and this receptivity that enabled him to see more because he had the language to identify it. And if we don't have the language, we see vague holes, right? If we have the language, the vocabulary, ah, I know what that is. I know what those parts are. Right? like going into a medieval church. If you don't know the language, you say, oh, it's beautiful, but you're just grasping some sense of the whole. If you know the language, 
you can go in and, and actually identify in minute detail why this is beautiful, why this icon is beautiful. I think Chesterton had that, I mean, it's a very mobile mind. So it seems anti-contemplative in some sense, but it's contemplative in that sense that Pieper thinks that we need to be contemplative with respect to particulars, right? The receptivity and silence to seeing things as they are and then to articulating them. Great question. Dr. Hibbs, thank you so much for coming. It was a fantastic talk. Um, I really liked your point about um, kind of the renovation and renaissance that Francis and Aquinas brought to the church. Um, what do you think the call to like rebuilding and rebirth looks like for us um, in the church today? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. You know, let me just say something first about uh, Reformation. You know, I, I taught very happily for the past 16 years before I came back to the University of Dallas, where I got my undergraduate and a master's. Um, at, I was the, the first Catholic administrator at the world's largest Baptist university. And when I taught Aquinas to large uh, lecture halls of about 250 students, and there are a large number of Catholics and lots of converts, it's actually a great place to be a Catholic. Um, you know, I would say that um, about Aquinas, I, I would say, look, his decision, and Chesterton makes a lot of this, it's sort of brilliant. Right, I think my way in Texas of getting at what it meant for Aquinas to choose the Dominicans over the Benedictines, it would be like a Baptist pastor giving up an opportunity at First Baptist to go to the Cowboy Church, right, and and work. That's what Aqu and Chesterton you see in the book on Aquinas, he's struggling to try. We say, oh yeah, but we assume. I mean, you all know these great Dominicans, right? probably the on the east coast where you are it's it's one of the greatest rebirths of religious life because of the Dominican House of Studies in DC that we may have ever witnessed in this country it's it's among the greatest and so we think of course yeah Dominicans Benedictines sort of equal maybe Dominicans more attractive now right well not so in the time of Thomas Aquinas right and it was sort of the equivalent of giving up the posh appointment at First Baptist to go out into the woods and with the cowboy church. The other thing I would say is that what Thomas and Francis did was indeed a reformation from within the church. It was a reformation. It was also a renaissance of learning before the renaissance. And I think that's really important that we see that it was a reformation, it was, Right, Francis, God gives Francis the vision. My church is in ruins, rebuild it. And so he's being very practical and concrete. He starts picking up stones and going around the Assisi and finding stones. I'm rebuilding the church, right? Everybody else saw what he was doing was rebuilding Christendom, right? What he did was to look back to the fathers and to scripture. And, you know, Chesterton talks about the, the kind of strange thing that's in Augustine too, about just opening scripture and picking a passage, right? Oh, what does this one say? What does this one say to me? Well, that seems a little odd to us, but the assumption there, and it's the assumption of Augustine in the garden, the Tololege pick up and read at the moment of his conversion is that these great within the church reformations occur because certain individuals believe that God is speaking directly to them in scripture and that they need to imitate the lives of those who preceded them in hearing that very personal life altering call. So it's followed, you know, a couple centuries later by Ignatius wounded in war, lying in bed. He can't find any of these stupid Don Quixote cheesy Don Quixote romances that he's been reading, he reads the lives of the saints. And he decides that what he needs to do is to do what Francis and Dominic did. What did they do? They read the scripture as if God was speaking directly to them. And then went out with reckless abandon to do what God asked of them. So if there's going to be a reformation of the, of the Roman Catholic church from within, it's going to be because we have saints who do that. 
I think one of the points I was trying to make at the end is that we really have cheapened the training of the imagination as believers. And I think it is very important that we look for those opportunities where our imaginations are brought into the vast creation of God, right? And where beauty calls us to want to imitate other beautiful lives, but also to want to ponder our place within the whole. I mean, th this is an astonishing universe that we are part of, Unfa unfathomable, right, for us. A and yet there are very few artists or poets, Christians, who take that seriously. So to, to and, and this is important for how we educate young people, and it's important for us as adults uh, that we, we take upon ourselves, as Shakespeare says in King Lear, the mystery of things, right? And, and we've got to be people who are deeply attuned to the wonder and mystery that God is always more than what we have imagined. Um, and, you know, and in that actually lies the, the, what Chesterton says about Francis as the pardon of God. I mean, people experience Francis, and he, you know, he's one of those saints who kind of terrifies me. I don't know what I would have done if I were in his presence. Um, but Francis walked the earth as the pardon of God, and Christians were converted to Christianity in a way that made it real for them in ways that had been just sort of shadows before. But that, but that he struck the imagination, right? He struck the imagination in a way that made everyone see things differently, see themselves differently, and understand the mercy of God as directly applicable and, and available to them. Um. We have one question from Ben, who is at UVA, but I will just read it. it. It talks about kind of the idea of mother nature versus nature as a sister um, and how that is a helpful analogy to think of kind of train our imagination to see it a different way, kind of um, uh, nature and the cosmos in as a sister and not as a mother. Yeah, the... Um... So there, you know, there's really good, um, because of course, Mary is the mother, right? Uh, properly for us. Um, but there's a lot of, uh, and this is the, the kind of transformation, uh, again, um, of the pagan world by the Christian world, that there's a lot of uh, association in medieval writing of Mary with the cosmos, right? So, I mean, Mary is the vehicle through which God enters the cosmos. And she is the mother that gives birth to both the natural and the supernatural. So we don't want to, unless we think of Mary as recapitulating nature, right? And renewing the nature that Adam and Eve had spoiled. We don't want to think of nature as a whole generically as the mother, right? Partly because it impersonalizes nature when and, and, and motherhood, right? It makes motherhood more impersonal because motherhood is about giving birth to specific individuals. Right, it's not about something that is just a conglomeration of the whole. So, uh, it makes motherhood impersonal, and uh, and it also um, it it also can obviously the danger would be that it can lead to a kind of pantheism or a kind of nature worship. And I think Chesterton that's one of the points on which Chesterton is really strong, 
is just indicating that there's none of that in Francis, right? There's no nature worship. Okay, the last question is kind of talking about, um, you mentioned that the two important revivals are understanding of the cosmos and an understanding of anthropology. Um, there seems to be, I will just read the question. Uh, in my experience as a medical student, I have found a lot of common ground with my secular colleagues in our mutual appreciation for the beauty and complexity of human beings and creation. But the major obstacle I have found in moving forward from that is the difference in our metaphysical understanding of what it means to be a human being. What are your thoughts on breaking the logjam between a Thomistic view of essence before existence and the postmodern view of existence before essence, for which the primary virtue is autonomy? Wow, it's kind of late for essence existence. Yeah, <laughs> but let me you know. Let me say a little about this. I might need to go get a glass of scotch or something to <laughs> be able to answer that one. Um, so, yeah, the essence um, and existence. You know, there there's a sense in which um, uh, existence has a primacy in the Thomistic view, right? Because God is pure being. I am who am, uh, as Aquinas puts it in Latin, ipsum esse subsistence, subsisting existence or being. Uh, but the, the postmodern part of this is that we exist and then create what we are, right? That's the, the postmodern part. And, you know, okay, here's a, here's a way of thinking about that. In light of love, I think Laudato Si actually um, applies directly to this. That notion that we exist and then create what we are, that is the most, one of the most radical versions of what JP2, Benedict, and Francis call the, anthrop the radically anthropocentric model. Now, the interesting thing about Francis's argument here and engaging a secular audience is that Francis's claim is that many of the things that people on the progressive left see as evil, economic, or excuse me, ecological devastation, right, the the, the development of machines and technology that destroy natural habitats, primitive communities. Francis is right in saying that those are all, all those evils are rooted in an anthropocentric model that we exist and then create what we are. Because that model allows for limitless manipulation of external matter and the human body. Right now, sometimes on the left, they'll like the manipulation of the human body, right? My body, my choice, my body, my gender. That's certainly rooted in a radically anthropocentric model, but that's the same model, Francis wants to say, that is at the root of a complete indifference to conservation and ecology. So one of the ways, one of the things that I like about what Francis is doing, this is what I was trying to point out briefly at the beginning. I think this encyclical is really sophisticated and clever in lots of ways. I think that Francis there is doing what JP2 does in Fides et Ratio with Reason. Francis is saying, look, I agree with you on a number of your criticisms of what we've done to the environment, what our, what our throwaway culture has done. Francis wanted to say, that's rooted in this radically anthropocentric view that I am and then create myself in whatever way I want. I refashion the external world. I refashion myself. So Francis wants to say, that's actually at the root of all the stuff you hate with respect to ecology and the environment. But guess what? It's also underlying lots of things that you love. 
the manipulation of genes, the manipulation of the of unborn fetal matter, abortion on demand, right? The viewing of um, the disabled, the feeble elderly, and in many cases, the poor as unproductive and therefore to be dismissed. Why? Because they can't fashion themselves the way we do, right? So that on that view of existence prior to essence, personhood is something you create. Well, you like it there, but you don't like it when it has these devastating impacts on the environment and the natural world. And when it feeds an economic throwaway culture, you don't like it there, right? So, so I think that this is one possible way of using elements of that encyclical to engage completely secular people. Of course, you know, it's not the, the, the secular media just completely botched the um, Laudato Si. All they wanted to talk about was climate change. In fact, they called the prayers at the end. Time Magazine called them the prayers about climate change, the prayers at the end of Laudato Si. And these are the prayers that end after the reflection on Mary and the Eucharist. I mean, it's just absurd. It, it's actually a really deep, interesting encyclical. And I, you know, I, I, I'm not... I'm not sure what to make of some parts of the opening, not about climate change, but about exactly what the moral obligations are that flow specifically. I think there are lots of questions that are just left unresolved in the encyclical. But I think it's actually a really brilliant encyclical that engages modernity in a way that I think John Paul II, in a sense, invented, which is not the full frontal assault of modernism and its heresies, but an engagement of modernity to say, okay, you're after certain things. Why is it that the way you pursue those things seems inevitably to undermine what you hope to gain from those things, right? It's, it's really a genius move that's in a lot of John Paul II. It's in his reflection on rights in um, the gospel of life, this, this, this um, startling contradiction about the increased rhetoric around rights and the shrinking of the community of those who actually have the rights, who are counted in. It's, it's just all over the place in JP2. I don't see Francis doing that all the time or as consistently as JP2 did, but I do think he's doing that in places in, in Laudato Si'. 